I know, I know I'm not the only one that gets in those situations, and, uh, and it is an amazing that God's going to take you down and use you to help marriages. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, if He didn't use people like us, there'd be nobody to use, would there? So, uh, thankfully, what an amazing God we have. And uh, for those of you that are uh, uh, visiting or guests this morning, why, just a special welcome to you, especially if you're a mom here with a son or daughter, and uh, very grateful for you being here. On Mother's Day and Father's Day, um, I typically look at a topic in the Bible which is applicable to all of us, and then I may make some applications. Uh, I do that a lot easier with fathers than I do mothers for obvious reasons. Uh, Mothers and giving uh, uh, teaching to them is uh, treacherous territory unless it's something the Bible specifically speaks about. And there are some passages like that, and, uh, and when we look at those, why then, um, then I make uh, applications to the broader group. So that's kind of what I typically do on Mother's and Father's Day. And, um, and, uh, and I was going to actually have Camilla in here with me, my wife, and uh, interview her. But uh, I was a little bit fearful because I thought if I asked her what are some of the greatest challenges she's faced as a mother, she might say her husband. (laughs) And so I thought it would wiser to just uh, ask her if she had any words for you moms, especially you young moms. Uh, And uh, so we did this little video this morning. She's over teaching kids uh, during this hour. That's why she's actually not in here. So... Here's a little short video of Camilla. So do you have anything that you would like to say to the mothers this morning? Well, I would say Happy Mother's Day. And it's a great thing to be a mom. It's a lot of work, but it is a holy and high calling that God has you at to work, to train up little disciples, and to train future adults. So persist, start your morning with the Lord, and see what He does through you. Amen. Amen, amen. So this morning I want to, yeah. She's an amazing mom, uh, in spite of me, quite frankly. So anyway, I'm grateful for that. We have a good God. So this morning I thought I'd, uh, we'd go after, and we'll do the same thing on Father's Day. We'll pick it up a little and take it another step further. But just by asking the question, what is the main priority in life? If you're only going to accomplish one thing in life, what would that be? Uh, What is it that filters into everything? If you're a mom, what is your main priority? If you're a dad, what's your main priority? If you're a single person, what is your main priority? If you're a high schooler graduating, looking at this next step, what is the overarching priority for your life? And, uh, and that's important to settle because that has everything to do with how we organize our lives and how we see our lives. And there's lots of different ways to put that. This morning, I want to put it this way. The main priority is to live in God's bigness, is to be living in the bigness of who God is. And that's applicable to every single person, no matter what. Now, early on, I was, uh, early in my Christian life, I was taught the priorities went like this. God, me, if I'm married, my uh, Camilla, if I have children, the children, and the church, or vocation, and neighborhood, and the world, and those kinds of things. 
And uh, quite frankly, uh, being one who likes flow charts and, and to get things right, uh, I found that was really frustrating because it just didn't seem to match what I saw in the scriptures. Jesus is just walking down and he's interrupted and that's the moment where God wants to be big. I mean, if he kept his priorities the way I was taught to keep my priorities, I would have said, I got to get to someone's house who's sick. And, and so it just didn't exactly seem to fit what I saw in the scriptures. And in many ways, I didn't know how to make it fit in my own life because sometimes in uh, my own personal walk with the Lord, sometimes things happen in the family that trump what may be my own personal worship time. Sometimes in the midst of having something planned with Camilla, something with the kids trumps that, or something at work trumps that. Uh, here I am, headed to Hawaii on a uh, six-week special operations thing, and we have a son born. You know, how does that work? And in the Bible, they went off to war. So, so that was just really frustrating, and, and, and uh and, I, and I, I think the other downside of that is, is I think we actually measure our spirituality by how we keep our priorities. And that it can almost become an idol. So, uh, here's one that I was developed in by somebody else that I have found helpful. We begin with God, obviously, and we often use the triangle just to symbolize one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then within God is myself and these different uh, orbits, if you will, these different levels of relationship. And so uh, I have myself, uh, there's a household. If you're married, that would be your uh, life partner. If uh, you have kids, it'd be the kids in the home. Sometimes we have other people staying in our homes, and that's a unique opportunity to, to disciple and have an influence on them. Um, certainly, that's the way it was in the, in the Bible times with Cornelius and his household. Uh, it wasn't just his family. It was all the people who worked for him, his slaves. Uh, community is just kind of the church work, neighborhood, clubs, uh, whatever that might be. Those are the people that are near to you and you just end up doing life with. And then uh, the world would be those that... Uh, would be those that you have to put some effort into reaching. Uh, you have to do something to get to them and, and to reach them. Now, uh, here's the thing. I think that we're called to be involved in all of those all at the same time. Uh, I think I'm responsible for my own relationship with the Lord and each one of you are uniquely responsible for your own relationship with the Lord. One day we will all stand before the Lord and it will just be us. There won't be any finger pointing. There won't be anything. And uh, we're the one that we have full responsibility for. But then God has given us these relationships and uh, in the household and in the community and in the world. And it's up to us to figure out how God wants us to be involved in each one of those in each moment and each day and each season of life. And it, and it changes a lot. And it can change fast. And, and, 
And we have to be good at figuring out what God wants us to do and be faithful to it. Because it's not this nice, neat list of things. Um, And again, we see this throughout the scriptures. We see this in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, there's some a sense of a greater responsibility to my own family, uh, given to me by God as a unique stewardship, and uh, and and so that is going to that's going to get more horsepower. It's going to take more of my money. It's going to take more of my time. It's going to take more of my affections, and that's all right and good. Um, but then. There's also to be involved in other places, in other communities, church, work, neighborhoods, clubs, as well as in the world. And so we need to, to just figure out how we do this. And, uh, and, and it's been helpful to me to see, or to think of it in these terms. How do you figure out where to be involved? And I think a big part of it is, is where is God showing his bigness? Or how is the bigness of God going to be experienced in each one of those realms that God has called me to be involved in? How will I see the bigness of God? Where is God seeking to make himself big? Now, the bigness of God is not exactly a rich theological term. You might recognize that right off. Um, it's kind of a street slang for the rich theological terms like the holiness of God. That God is the only whole person, W-H-O-L-E. He's whole in His love. He's whole in His justice. He's whole in his wisdom, and, and, and all of that comes together, and that makes him big. Or his glory, glory, the Old Testament uh, Hebrew word for glory, literally means heaviness or weightiness. And, and thus, glory means God is the biggest. So I understand it's not exactly a rich theological term, but um, hopefully it'll help connect some dots this morning um, that would help us to live in the bigness of who God is. And certainly for those of us with small children, uh, or those of you with small children, I should say, well, that season's over for us, crazy. Um, this, is a, this is an easy way to communicate and disciple children into the bigness and greatness of who God is. So here's what I'm thinking, for example. You may be thinking, what in the world is he trying to say? Here's what I'm saying. Uh, When you think about this, think about this. Who is the biggest one when it comes to knowledge? Yeah, it's a safe place to say that, okay? Just say God real loud. God. God. So when God weighs in on something, who should have the weight? Who should be believed? Yeah, And so when he says something, he's the biggest and he wins, no matter what all the other competing voices might be saying. Uh, Who's the biggest one when it comes to authority and power? God is. So when he says that he gives authority to something, or when he says when you do this, you'll experience his power, who should win? Who should we believe? Who should we trust? 
because he's the biggest one. And so when he says, uh, or, or let me ask it this way, who has the best and biggest plan for your life? God does. And so when God says something, when he brought you into the world, when he put you in the home, when he calls you home, and everything in between, when he gives direction to my life and to your life, who should we listen to? We should listen to God. Who loves you the most? Who loves us the most? Who's the biggest in love? God is. God is. So when we're rejected, when we suffer, what we should we believe about love? We should believe God is the biggest in love. In fact, he's infinite in all of those things that we have talked about. Now, one of the great statements about the bigness of who God is is found in Romans chapter 11. You can open up your Bibles if you want, or here's the passage. I put it up here because I want to read it together. But Romans chapter 11. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. And the book of Romans is probably one of the most complete explanations of God's work in the world towards Jewish people and non-Jewish people, how there's a hopelessness because of that, and that everybody deserves his justice and judgment, and yet God has intervened in a way that is amazing by sending his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, and how God then uh, has put us in a place where there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and how we can grow in living under the influence of God and the, and the Spirit as long as we live, and then when we die, we go instantly to heaven. And then he jumps in in Romans 9 through 11, and he lays out this, he just reminds people and lays out how God makes, has made some choices that may mess with our heads. But it's God. And so when God makes a choice, who makes the best choice? God, who's the biggest? God, who knows more than anybody else? God. And so he walks through the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people, and he walks through all of that and, and, and lays it out, what has happened, what will happen, and he comes to the end of that, and this is the, is the declaration, this is the summary, before he moves in and gives a bunch of commandments, hundreds of commandments, which are easy to follow when you understand the bigness of God, and the bigness of his love, and the bigness of his plan for our lives. I mean, the reason we chafe against God in obeying his commandments is because we say, that doesn't make any sense. I was so struck last week by Diego when he was baptized, saying he was reading the scriptures, as I hope I don't mess this up, Diego. If I do, you can beat me up afterwards or something, <laughs> which won't take much. But anyway... Um, reading that he had to forgive other people or God would not forgive him. 
and he flies to Mexico to forgive his mother who had abandoned him early in life. I mean, that's when the bigness of God makes forgiveness make sense. And you just do it because God is big. I asked him how it went, and he said, well, she wasn't really receptive to the gospel. But that's not your deal, is it? That's not your deal. That's God's deal. And so the bigness of God just makes it easy and desirable to obey really hard things that he calls us to do that we would say don't make a lick of sense to anybody. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask us to stand, if we would, and to read this together. And... Yeah, so let's just read it together. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became His counselor, or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And we say, Amen. Uh, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, 150 years ago, preached a message on just that last phrase. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And this is a little bit of what he says. He says, such a tremendous weight of meaning is concentrated here that an archangel's eloquence would fail to convey its teaching in all its glory to any finite minds, even if seraphs were his hearers. Seraphs is a particular kind of angel. He says, I will affirm that there is no man living who can preach from my text a sermon worthy of it. No, among all the sacred orators and the eloquent pleaders for God, there never did live and never will live a man capable of reaching the height of the great argument contained in these few simple words. I utterly despair of success and will not therefore make an attempt to work out the infinite glory of this sentence. Our great God alone can expound this verse. For he only knows himself, and he only can worthily set forth his own perfections. Yet I am comforted by this reflection that maybe, in answer to our prayers, God himself may preach from this text this morning in our hearts. If not through the words of the speaker, yet by that still small voice to which the believer's ear is so well accustomed. If thus he shall condescend to favor us, our hearts shall be lifted up, in his ways. And so with that in mind, let's pray together. And would you just each say, God, help me to know more of the bigness, more of the glory of who you are that is so clearly proclaimed here. And Lord, we are confident because of what we see in Scripture and your work in our own lives that you will condescend. And you will expand our view 
of the greatness and the glory and the holiness and the bigness of who you are. Thank you, Spirit of God, for your commitment to that end, for the glory of God and for our good this morning. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So a couple things. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because I don't think it really needs a ton of time. Um, but you'll just notice how Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Who's the biggest when it comes to wisdom? Who's the biggest when it comes to knowledge? So that makes how unsearchable are his judgments. When he makes a judgment, when he brings up a nation or he brings down a nation or when specific things happen in the world, those judgments are unsearchable. They are unfathomable by our puny minds. Because uh, uh, we don't know the mind of the Lord. And if you want an exercise in futility, counsel him on what he should be doing. And we've all done it. We've all been critical of something that's happened as a part of his judgment to bless people we don't think should be blessed or to bring something else in other people's life. We don't have any right to be a counselor. We haven't given anything to him that it might be paid back to him again. He owes us nothing. I mean, the only thing we bring to the table is our sinfulness and our rebellion. That's all we bring. He doesn't need that. We're the amazing ones who re receive and receive and receive and receive. And it should never come off of our hearts, God, you owe me for this. No. It's quite the other way around. For from him, everything begins with him. Where did the idea come from for this universe? Where did the idea come for this planet? Where did the idea come for every insect and every fish and every bird? and every person. That all came out of the mind of God. There was nobody else but him. And, and it all came because he spoke it into existence. He just made it. Crazy. All the laws that we figure out and enjoy and live by and work by, where did all those, who put all those in place? God did. God did. We're still learning stuff about what he did. We always will be. But he's not a detached God. He also comes through him. He, he's the one who brings it. And it will all return to him. Whenever it comes together, Everybody just has to look up and say, wow, God. Wow, God. And the Christian life is, is a life of just doing that and realizing that. And you have more and more wow, God, 
wow God. And that is going to be multiplied infinitely when we get to heaven, when we say, wow God. So to him be the glory. Just put in bigness. To him be the bigness forever and ever. And the amazing thing about this is, is that while we are very small, we are not insignificant. We are very small and compared to God's bigness, but we are very significant because we are his idea. None of us came into this world because it was our idea. None of us came into this world because our moms and dads sat down and drew up a blueprint of the kind of child they wanted to have. If we did, it didn't work that way. <laughs> they all came with that sin nature that we didn't pick. We're all God's idea, and we've been placed in the places that we've been placed uh, for the plans that he has for us that he came up with before the foundation of the world. And when we leave this planet, it's up to him as well. To him be the glory, to him be the bigness forever and ever. Amen. And so what's the great priority of life? It is that we would live our lives in such a way that we would see his bigness forever and ever. So, we are the proverbial flea on the elephant. If elephants have fleas, I actually never thought about that till right now. Maybe this analogy's broken from the beginning. But let's say elephants can have fleas. We are the proverbial flea on the elephant. Here's the deal, though. Don't be happy with how much of the elephant you know. Keep learning from other fleas. Keep learning from the book on elephants. Keep discovering on your own. Or, to put it this way, which makes more sense probably, Look at the scriptures. The scriptures describe the bigness of who God is. Circumstances are an opportunity to see the bigness of God. I would contend that every circumstance is, a, is God saying, I'm big. I'm big. And other believers, living life with them gives us another chance to see the bigness of God. And these three are very intertwined. So let me just walk through each one of them just for a few moments here. Uh, think, first of all, about the Scriptures. Uh, and, and if you're familiar with your Old Testament, for example, why do we love so many of the Old Testament accounts of God working? Why do we love the creation account? Because what? It shows the bigness of God and his care for people. Why do we appreciate that after Adam and Eve sinned that God moved towards them and provided a solution? Because it shows the bigness of God. Why do we love the story of Moses leading the people of Israel up to the Red Sea? And God's saying, stretch out your staff and the water parts. They walk through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit comes and the thing closes up and drowns them all. Why do we like those stories? Because they show us what? The bigness of who God is 
and his care for his people. And it shows us that his justice and his judgments come out of an infinite wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Why do we like the story of David and Goliath? Because it shows the bigness of who God is. Why do we like the story of Esther and the king of the known world of that day who, was gonna, who had given a decree to wipe out all the Jews and she uses her access to turn the whole thing around because it shows the bigness of who God is. And we could go on and on and on. This summer, in both uh, the music camp and the children's kids camp, going to be looking at some miraculous story of God's work in people's life. Why is that important? Because it shows the bigness of who God is. Which, by the way, is why these miracles are so often attacked. Why they're mocked and they're ridiculed. Because people don't want to admit that God's big. They don't. That's why creation is such a point of attack. Oh, Jonah and the fish. David and Goliath. That's why they're so often mocked. They don't want a big God. Because if God is the biggest, then he's going to win. He's going to weigh in. And I have some responsibility for my response to him. But it's not just the accounts. And by the way, we could go through the life of Jesus as well. I mean, his whole birth. Is God bigger what? God becomes a person and he's God and a person at the same time? Through a mother? And then at 12, he's in the temple and he's teaching and he's messing with all the scholars. And then he begins his ministry and man, he begins to heal people that nobody could heal. One woman had spent her whole life savings trying to get healing and it didn't work. And she touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. Bunch of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, been hanging on Jesus' teaching. They're hungry, they're in the middle of no place. And he multiplies the bread and the fish to them. That night, he puts his disciples in a boat, in a storm, and he comes walking on the water to them. Is he big or what? And he says to the storm, knock it off. Peace. And it's peaceful. Peter says, bid me to come walk to you. Jesus says, come on. Peter's walking on water. Is God big? God is big. And then he's crucified and he pays for all of our sins. All who would believe in him. And then he conquers that through the resurrection. God is big. God is big. But it's not just these accounts, and by the way, it continues on in the early church. 
It's also in the scriptural statements. So, for example, um, when, when the scriptures tell us that it doesn't make any difference how deep you have dug your hole with God or how religious you think you've been, but it hasn't included Jesus Christ, you can come to Jesus and he will forgive you of all of your sins and you can be right with him. Is God that big? Can God forgive no matter what? has happened and how deep we've dug our hole or how self-righteous we've been. Yes, God is that big. I think that's part of the reason the Apostle Paul, this comes off the lips of the Apostle Paul. He's thinking, I was one chasing around Christians, putting them in prison. I stood there and oversaw Stephen stoning after he preached one of the best messages that's ever been preached. And I think Paul says, this doesn't make a lick of sense. That me, my religious zeal, but missing God, in fact, fighting against God, he turns my heart towards him and then puts me into ministry? Yeah, God is that big. God is that big. Let me just run through three scriptures here that just help us to see this. This is the first scripture I was told to memorize when I became a follower of Christ at 20, I think, 2021. 20, it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That's just a statement that says God is bigger. That's all that's saying. First of all, don't think that you're a special case that your case is harder than anybody else's. That's a lie. It's amazing how special we all want to feel about ourselves. God says, no, you're pretty run-of-the-mill. Pretty run-of-the-mill. And my expertise is run-of-the-mill, people. And so uh, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted. He will not allow you to be tested. Now, what is the way of escape in the context? It is trusting in God's bigness. Know that God is bigger than any testing. God is bigger than any temptation. And he will provide all you need to endure it. Not to escape from it, to endure it. That is simply a calling to trust God and his bigness. How about this? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess literally means to say the same thing. When we say the same thing about our sins as God says, then he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Is God big enough to forgive us of our sins? Yes, that's our only hope. In fact, he's so big he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can go to counseling for 150 years and they can't cleanse your heart of unrighteousness. God will. Now, a good counselor will help you experience the cleansing God provides. But all the human techniques can never do that. That's just a statement saying God's big. He's big in his faithfulness. He's big in what he did on the cross in Christ in paying for sins. 
The psalmist says this, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you kept track of our iniquities, I mean, who could stand? What's the answer? No one. Not one. But thankfully, there is forgiveness with you, and interestingly, that you may be feared. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? That you may be feared. What's going on there? It's the experience of... uh, of the, of the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, what did they say? Oh boy, this is great. No, they freaked out. They said, who is this that can calm the storm? Who is this that can cause Peter to walk on the water? Who is this? In one of the fishing expeditions when Jesus got a whole load of fish after they didn't catch any that night, well, Peter did and the disciples Remember what Peter did? He fell at the feet of Jesus in the boat and says, depart from me. I am a man who's unclean. You see, what happens when you you experience the bigness of God, it causes you to have a reverence for him and a respect for him because you are not dealing with an equal. You're dealing with somebody who's big. And it brings a right fear to our hearts and lives. One more. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this is more of a proactive one. So let me ask you this. Can you personally disciple other people? It all depends on how big you think God is. That's what it boils down to for every single one of us. How big is God to you? Is God big enough to help you and work in you to make disciples of other people? Is he big enough to give you the opportunity to be able to stand up here and to baptize somebody? Or, or do you have to trust the church to do that? Or trust some experts to do that, like pastors? Once you get to know us, you realize we're not all that expert either. You see, it all depends on how big your God is. We always want to think, and this is just a human malady, uh, I need to have somebody else do this. Because they're better than I am. And in some cases that can be true. You don't want me fixing your car. But when God gives a command like this to all people, he's not looking at our competencies. He's saying, I am big enough to work in and through you. The verse before it says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. I have all the authority in heaven and earth. I will work in you and through you so you can disciple other people. Now, let me just make an application to parents here. One of the great tendencies of parents is to entrust the spiritual discipleship of their child or children to the church. And I've been at this long enough to see the results of that. And so have some of you, and it's a grief, isn't it? Because, I mean, why did you do that? Because you thought that they were more competent than you were. 
what we miss in that is to understand God gave us that child. And because they are our child, he has given us an authority and an access into their life just based upon about the time we spend with them, if nothing else. And the natural affinity of a child to want to love and be loved and to respect and to listen to the parent. I know you may question that sometimes, but it's there. And, 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 and we need to lean into that. And we need to be the primary source of teaching them the scriptures. And we need to be the primary source of helping them develop to help disciple other people. And, and we need to see that that's our primary responsibility. Now, when we're faithful to that, the church can multiply what we do. But in my experience, when someone grows up in a Christian home and they look to the church to do that, it does not turn out well. Because the primary authority has been given to parents. And so, if you're a single dad or you're a single mom, or maybe you live in a home with a husband or wife, but they're not a Christian, you have to lean into this one. You can't expect the church to do what God has uniquely called you to do. And I mean, Timothy is a great example of this for you single moms, or, or actually women living with an unbeliever. And so you can read Timothy. I mean, the grandmother and the mother poured into Timothy. They did. And so I just beg you, those of you that have children at home still, lean into this. You can lead them in family devotions. You can teach them the scriptures. You can help them see the bigness of God in all of life. Nobody can help you do it better than you can. Now, if someone comes out of a non-Christian home, then the church can have great influence and power and authority. And, and we've watched enough teenagers get radically saved and begin on a, an amazing trajectory in their life with the Lord, but they didn't come out of a Christian home. And so God gives us an access into their lives as their spiritual parents. So I hope that makes sense, but just lean into this one. Every single one of us who know Christ can make disciples of people. Every single one of us. And it all depends on how big we see God. Well, how about circumstances? Uh, circumstances are really just a classroom to make us focus on God's bigness. I, this is so helpful to me. Hope it is to you. Just see every circumstance as an opportunity to see God's bigness. And the more freaked out you are about the circumstance, the, the, the more you can see God's bigness. Okay? I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? I don't like it, but it makes sense. Because the more dependent I am on him showing up and doing something, that's way out of my league. And so every circumstance is God wanting to stamp his bigness. Uh, and just as you read through the scriptures, notice that. All those plagues in Egypt were all God saying, I'm bigger than the God of the Nile. I'm bigger than the sun God. I'm bigger than the moon God. And the same is true in our lives. C.S. Lewis, the British, uh, what did he teach, language? University language instructor, I think. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, 
speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so circumstances are just a chance for us to live out the scriptures. And the third thing I said was believers. Believers, just be around other believers. And, and you end up with people going through something or experiencing something, and you say, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. Just move towards them and you'll see the bigness of God. Or let people move towards you. Sometimes you're saying, I don't know how to pay for this, but it needs to be done. And people will come and say, let me help, let me help, let me help. Believers are often the means by which we see the bigness of God. I, uh, I float around and go to different Sunday school classes just to kind of see what's going on around here from 9 to 10. So I sat in David Glover's class on what we believe about God for a couple of weeks. And I know it was probably a frustrating class to some people because he wasn't saying, this is who God is, this is who God is, this is who God is. It's very healthy. It's very healthy because if you can figure out who God is, you're bigger than God. And what the scriptures do is they kind of put these guardrails on us and say, air, air, heresy, heresy. Stay in here and be in awe. And there should be some uncertainty that comes out of the scriptures about the greatness and bigness of who God is. And so we need to be around other believers. Well, then we need to just live in this, and I've probably made enough of those applications as we have gone through this, uh, to live in the bigness of God. So here's the deal. You're in some situation today that you do not want to move towards. If you don't have any choice, that's really healthy. That's really healthy. And I just, I just want you to see that, that that is God saying, I'm big. Trust me for my bigness. Look to me to be big. You are small, but you're significant. I want to use my bigness on your behalf and behalf of the people that live around you. Trust me. I'm big. Do you feel like you've been rejected? Trust the bigness of my love for you. You feel like you can't take any more of this rejection from a child or some, something else, parent? Trust me for my bigness. You feel like you can't win over this sin? Trust me, I'm big. You feel like you're in a situation that you want to run from? Don't run. Trust me, I'm big. God wants to show his bigness. And so here's kind of the bottom line this morning. Don't settle for living in your littleness, but live in God's bigness. That is the priority of life. The priority of life is to more and more say everything comes from him, everything comes through him, everything returns back to him, to him be the bigness forever more. You have, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with this thing of, is the cup half full or half empty? Yeah. So how many of you, just out of curiosity, how many of you say it's half full? How many of you say it's half empty? 
Yeah, and the ones that say, yeah, I mean, you both argue that you're a realist. Okay, well, whatever your default position is, which is just the way God created you, whether you see it as half full or half empty, here's what God wants to do. He wants to say, that's just you. I want to make it all the way full. If you'll trust me in my bigness, then the whole thing will just keep overflowing and overflowing and overflowing and overflowing and it's water. Hopefully it'll dry. It's overflowing. That's what God wants to do. He doesn't want us to be like David and say, all I have is a sling. I guess he'll just have to keep defiling God. Doesn't want us to be like Moses who said, oh God, you brought us to this thing to die. I'm not stretching out my staff. What sense does that make? Oh, all these people are hungry. We just have a couple of loaves of bread and fish. That's stupid. It's only enough for me. God takes what we have, and if we'll live in his bigness, he overflows it. Amen? Amen. Why don't you bow your heads in whatever particular circumstance or situation that God's trying to reveal his bigness to you. Why don't you go ahead and trust him for his bigness? And you might just do it like this. If you've never been a follower of Jesus Christ, Why, that would be the beginning step. And maybe this morning you just want to say, thank you, God, that you're big enough to bring me into a relationship with you and to cause me to be a follower of yours, even though I haven't been for the last 80 years, 40 years. Or maybe it's a particular situation God, I trust you for the bigness of your love in this situation to love somebody who's rejected me and rejected me and rejected me. Or God, I trust you for your power to no longer walk in this sin. But make your recognition of God's bigness specific. And because we're people that are more prone to walk by sight than by faith, we're going to have to keep saying this to ourselves. Do not be concerned about what you don't have. Take the sling you have. Take the couple loaves of bread you have. Take the staff you have and bring it and let God add his bigness and do what he alone can do. Thank you, oh God, for being the biggest. Everything has come from you. Everything does come through you. Lord, everything will return back to you. To you be the bigness forever and ever. And we say, amen.